This, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, people? Welcome back to Rebounding Safety. Today we're talking to the legendary and very, very popular in the sights of stuff right now, Jill Koenig. Let's jump into the intro and tell you some more about it. Let's go. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety does exactly what it says on a tin so if you're new here hit subscribe hit follow hit the bell whatever it is just hit it thank you very much because it does algorithm thingamajiggies and helps us get in more people's faces and ear holes so today's guest is a bit of a legend uh, in the space at the moment why because she's doing some epic work she is trying to get us to learn and create systemic change off the back of the tragedy of Renfell. Jill Koenig has wrote a really powerful book which is supported by a really powerful podcast. Um, I've read the book and we're going to have a great chat about the book and the work that she's doing and the lessons we've learned and just our general experiences within fire safety as well and trying to drive uh, systemic change and, and, and how she's kind of gone about that and, and the challenges that she's having and the successes that she's having. So great chat. Love talking to Jill. She's an amazing lady. If you don't already, make sure you follow her. All the details will be in the description below. Before we get into it, just a quick shout out to Paradigm Human Performance plus Shane Bush uh, for sponsoring this podcast and YouTube channel. Paradigm Human Performance plus Shane Bush are human organizational performance experts. They've been doing it for many years, um, specializing in human organizational performance, experienced in rail, nuclear, power energy you know so many amazing industries and very keen to continue doing so they're working with some phenomenal clients they're a phenomenal team i've been on their training uh, courses i've done work with them these these people are a phenomenal team led by some phenomenal people like Teresa and shane so if you're looking for some help to try and get your human and your organization to perform better then Paradigm is the place for you to go check them out. If you're not really sure yet, you can check out the Learning Organization webinar as well. Um, all of that's on their website. So go to their website. If you if you want them straight away, then their email address and phone number is in the description as well. And if you're still not sure, go find Teresa Swindon on LinkedIn. Go find Paradigm on LinkedIn. And just keep an eye on them because I'm telling you, you won't regret it. And we're really happy to partner with them on the podcast. So without further ado, let's get into today's conversation with the amazing Jill Koenig. Right, Jill, welcome. I'm going to say welcome back to the podcast because we like to be authentic and I'll be honest, we've done this once already, but I screwed up and the audio was was naff on my side. So apologies for that, but welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. No, it's good to have you. And, and I'm pleased that actually this happened because I've read your book now. So I think we can have a better conversation uh, about this now. I've read the book. But in case anybody doesn't know who you are, do you want to introduce yourself and, uh, and, and what you do, what you do? Brilliant. So um, uh, my name is Jill again. I am a consultant. I work in high hazard industries to develop the leadership capability and culture to prevent accidents. So I'm not a technical safety expert, much more come from organizational development, leadership, culture. Um, I have a particular passion for 
major accident prevention, which comes from spending a couple of years traveling the world, delivering a program for one of the big oil companies post a quite significant disaster and learning from the front line. So I have a passion for the front line. I have a passion for major accident prevention. Um, and then probably why I'm here is um, I, between 2011 and 2014, lived in Grenfell Tower on the 21st floor and fell in love with high-rise living and lived nearby in a high-rise and watched the fire. So it's really the uh, colliding, I would call it, and it is quite a collision and, and not always pretty and smooth, but the collision between my personal and my professional life and then wrote the book um, and a podcast series, which is called Catastrophe and Systemic Change. And, the, and the, you wrote the book and the podcast to complement each other, haven't you? I think that's worth touching on, um, if you don't mind. Yeah, so I wrote the, the book. So uh, the opportunity for the book came up, which is, I suppose, ultimately my attempt to make sense of why we don't learn from events such as Grenfell. Because as with all major accidents, you dig into them a little bit and you just discover the multiple failed opportunities to prevent them. And, and Grenfell was no different. I thought it might be, but it was no different. And also the response was actually worse than I imagined it would be from my experience in high hazard industry. So it was the book's really my attempt to make sense of, of that professionally and personally. And then I um, the podcast, so I, it's done together with Matthew Price, who I met the day of the fire. So at that point, he worked for the BBC. He was a journalist for the BBC. And he interviewed me for the Today programme. He is the person I turned to and said, I promise I'll make sure we learn from Grenfell. So I have a, a kind of existential connection with him, so to, so to speak. And we've stayed in touch over the years. Um, and I wanted to do a podcast that was bringing other voices in. So the book is my voice, but it's also all about diversity. And I'm, I'm, I mean, you, you and I have spoken about this before, but I really have a belief in the need to bring different voices and different expertise. So the podcast is the opportunity to take themes from the book and then bring other voices in to talk about them. And really Matthew um, and, and Philly, who produced it, they read an early draft of the book and then they designed the podcast series, which I loved. So it was it was like it's out of my control, which is all consistent with what I believe change yeah. takes. So it was a beautiful process. The, the book was super hard, but the podcast, I really, I really loved making that. It's a beautifully designed pro podcast. Like you, you can, you, you're, you can tell it was designed by a professional. And yeah just off the hoof like what I do it was you can tell there was a clear journey that you wanted the listener to go on um and and it was just yeah you, it was just I remember listening to it and being oh crap this is really good I hope she doesn't do any other series of this <laughs> don't just bring Matthew or other professionals in to help you so it, it was, but it's, it was, I learned a lot through the process because I think what's relevant um, from a safety perspective, which I think we'll both believe in is the, the importance of narrative and story and how 
you know, just there was exactly, you know, they read an early draft of the book and came up with a story arc and went, you know, this is the process to take listeners through. And then we went, well, who are people we want to bring into that conversation? There's something you um, want to get into the book, but there is something you mentioned there you touched on um, around getting different voices um, and like kind of a, a, a hat tip to kind of cognitive diversity in a way, like, which is, which is something that I got introduced to by the, from the book Rebel Ideas by Matthew Syed. I don't, have you read that? Book? I haven't read it. I know, I know Matthew's work, and, yeah. but I, ha- I haven't read it, no. Um, it's probably, like, everyone talks about black box thinking, you know, good book, you know, really good book. Um, I, I actually think Rebel Ideas is much better, um, and I think it's a much more needed book for us to read. But particularly in safety, um, I think the lack of diversity is is really hindering our, our progress. I, I want and you, and you kind of maybe alluded to that, like getting different voices and different stories there. Like, I don't know if you want to maybe, if you have any thoughts on that. I have no thoughts on that topic, James, at all. <laughs> so I, um, I, I think I mentioned this to you last time, so I'll just dive into it. So I don't actually consider myself a safety consultant or a safety professional because I struggle so much with the... Uh, I don't know. It's it's like the construct of a safety professional is so boxed in and typical. Do you know your compliance, policing, um, you, you know that whole genre. But even when you look at the challenge to that thinking, it's all coming from, to be frank, mostly white male and a, a lot of academic thinking. So I find the whole profession to be quite, um, I don't know what the right word is, it's kind of singular in voice, if that makes sense. So it's, it, it troubles me. It, it troubles me. It's kind of like, this is the way that you should think and we are the people that are telling you. And even when the, 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 the crazy thing about it, though, is the thinking so brilliant. So it's kind of like I love all of the new thinking in safety and harp and safety too and resilience i love all of that i use that all the time but there's something from the professional perspective which i think is a little bit troubling and i think diversity and and not just it, it's the diversity of thinking that whose whose voices are valued um that troubles me yeah like i could only really think of i mean in the practitioner side, I think there's a lot more diversity. Like I can think of a, a you know, Diane Chadwick, for example, comes yes. is probably one of the biggest leaders in in harp and oil and gas. Um, and and obviously Teresa, I know really well, who in the UK is a very big voice for harp and around the world, to be honest. But, but particularly when you look in the, the academic space, it is significantly lacking. Even if you just narrowed it down to genders, it's, it's yes. Let alone if you if you then widened it out into ethnic minorities and, and and things like that. It's just like we are so far away. It is it is very much a mirror of of the safety profession that they're trying to fix. It's just another white male, pale, stale kind of. Um, yeah, disappointing in a way. But again, it's that conflict that you've touched on in that it doesn't, it doesn't hinder, it doesn't 
devalue the work that's coming from them because I the same as you. I read Eric's work, I read Sydney's work, Todd's work, and you know, all of the other amazing people doing amazing work there, David Provan, Drew Ray. Yes. And I'm like, wow, you know, I love it. I'm in, I am in the bandwagon, like I'm got the reins in my hand, I am on this 100 percent But I do there's this lingering thought in the back of my head being like, I wonder what it would be like. How much better could it be if we had a little bit more diversity in there? And I I worry that there's not a you know, one of my things, which probably links to the rebel idea thing is change requires disruption. So you need the challenging voices to be heard, um, and often those voices are might be quite angry. So so they they might be voices that we can easily justify silencing, like in the in Greenfall the residents were silenced and the narratives used to silence them where they were rebels, aggressive, troublemakers. Yeah. So I, I just think that the profession would benefit from considering how it silences. I feel very silenced in, the, in that community, which is why I don't identify with it because I don't feel like I have a voice in the safety profession. Oh, wow. Anyway, we talk about the safety. I talk about the safety profession way too much, and frankly, I'm bored of it. So <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> move on, and and let's move on quite nicely uh, as a, a nice segue into the the closing, the shutting down of voices. I think when that was those two very powerful things for me in in your book um, around that. One was obviously, and I've just Googled his name to make sure I got his name right, um, Who, because unfortunately he's just passed away in a horrific incident. But the MP, uh, Sir David Ames. David Ames, yeah. Who was, who was the chair of the group that wrote 26 letters, I believe it was, um, that basically just was like, you need to look at this uh, really quickly, was, was eye-opening. Um, and then again, the residents, you know, the residents literally writing that line, which has been all over the media of, you know, I, I, I fear that it's a, only a catastrophic fire that's going to make them listen to us. And that when I read that, I was just like, I just, I don't know. It was just painful to read that somebody wrote that prior to the event and then it actually happened. Like you literally predicted the future. It was just really hard to read, Jen, if I'm honest. It was really hard to read, uh, particularly the first part of the book. Uh, with the stories and stuff, which we might come on to, but those two particular points were really upsetting. And uh, yeah, the work that I've done in the in the profession and, and yourself and many many others, it was just like I wonder. It made me it made me think. I wonder how many times in my career was there somebody that knew something was going to go wrong that their voice wasn't being heard. Yeah, I think it's so. There's something for me about. Grenfell, because it happened in people's homes. Yeah. That's different. Like I've been around, as anybody that's works in safety or high hazard industries, around people that have been impacted by horrific events, and I've, I've been around some of the biggest ones in in the world. But they didn't impact me like Grenfell. And I've spent. I mean, obviously, there's my personal connection, but I also grew up in South Africa. I've been around a lot of personal tragedy. And I think for me, it's this notion of people should be safe in their homes. I mean, if there's if there's one place where we should be safe, it's when we go home. 
And um, I mean, like you, James, when I read, I mean, there's even uh, the, the evidence that a select committee, like 30 years before Grenfell, talking about the spread of the danger of the spread of fire out the external facade. Yeah. And I, I just spent so many hours in tears as I discovered the, the failures, you know, the failures to learn the failures and particularly at government level, you know, like of, of scrutiny where the workings of government were working because people were raising the issues and they were just being ignored. Yeah. And and you sure interestingly, I, I kind of around the same time as reading your book, I was doing I'm doing a lot of work around it for some stuff that we're going to release hopefully in the new year at rebranding safety and like trying to trying to bring all of these tools theories or applications together and and help people work with them a bit better and i think your book does that really really well um but also it kind of i stumbled across like fukushima which was exactly the same fukushima the i can't remember the the agency the body that that are kind of um, regulates it there. I can't remember what the TEPCO actually. I think it was TEPCO that they they wrote to the the kind of plants and said twice before the before the tsunami. One was like you know the next biggest one's going to be like fourteen meters, and the next one's going to be like ten point two meters. Both of those were higher than their existing seawall, and they responded with a. Uh, well, they I, I kind of took a look at it, Jill. Like they responded on the basis of likelihood. Like they're yes. in the point of saying, oh, you know, you're not going to, it's it's not very likely, so we're not going to do anything with it. And then, but then ultimately they, that meant they had no capacity for the severity for, and you talk about this a lot in the book around low probability, but high severity events. Um, and that was just, it was echoes of Grenfell. Well, and it's echoes of the pandemic. So I, I do think there's a, um, in terms of the mindset of all of us, politicians, you know, people that run businesses, local government, wherever, is we're in, ingrained to go, well, if there's a low probability, let's ignore it. I mean, we even see this in the post-Grenfell responses. People go, well, it's not likely that there'll be another um high-rise fire so we'll just move on and pretend and even say that all buildings are safe when we know they're not yeah. you know so I, I do think there's something from a, a risk perspective and I increasingly important as complex as the world gets more complex we'll probably see more um, low probability high consequence events so we need to develop the ability to think about that kind of risk distinctly which is Frankly, what what fascinates me about it is because it's so complex. Yeah. You know, when when people's ability to speak up and be heard is as important as the physical barrier or layer of protection or whatever is in place, that takes it into a whole other level of complexity. And, and particularly in housing, like like you you come we'll come back to your original point. What what kind of hits? even harder with Grenfell was that it was their homes. Uh, like yeah. that, that for me is just like, I mean, it, and I struggle to get my words out around it, but like, you know, the, the women, men, children, babies in, in their, you know, if you were to, if you were just kind of sit outside of the working environment, like to forget work and you were to maybe go to a child and, and say, you know, what do you think safe is? You know, most of them will immediately say home. Like when we home. think 
that's the safest place that we feel really safe we all think home like if, if we're if we're tired we want to go home if we're upset we want to go home if we're in pain we want to go home you're in hospital all you want to do is go home and and I, and I, that was just all i could think as i was reading particularly the the earlier chapters of your book where you really kind of introduce a lot of the the, the victims and that was just for me, it gets, it's more complex because it is their home. And I've I've worked in housing and seen actually how complex this is. And it was just scarily complex. But that's also the thing that makes it really emotional and, and important as well. So it was the complexity that was the risk. But the reason that it was complex was also the reason why we needed to pay some more attention to it as well. And then also, you know, we... We know now that Grenfell wasn't an isolated building. So I th- I'm sure when we all watched it, it was kind of like, okay, well, this is just one siloed incident of a bad refurbishment. But we now know that there's thousands of buildings around the country and around the world that are built with flammable materials. In the UK, the terrible, terrible building practices and missing cavity barriers, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like, and still, last week there was an announcement by the, I think it was the Deputy Commissioner of the London Fire Brigade saying that today 60% of buildings being built, today, four and a half years after Grenfell, 60% of buildings have safety defects. Doesn't surprise me if I'm honest. And you just go, you know, so we haven't, you know, to 72 people died. I, I think that's for me the, the thing that I find really, really hard and kind of like an existential crisis is surely 72 people dying in their homes in one of the richest boroughs in one of the richest cities in the world would lead to change. Yeah, it, it, is, um, it is painful. I actually remember being around um my friend's house and I wasn't working in housing at the time but I was working in fire uh safety and risk assessment in the NHS at the time and um around my friend's house and all of all of our phones were literally like Twitter notifications whatever we're going we were like okay now something's going on here um put the news on and just sat and watched it and um and, and I remember saying to my mate like this is this is I'm not saying that I predicted it and knew this was going to happen. I'd probably I didn't think it would be that bad, but I think many people that have any kind of salt in them as a as a fire risk assessor could have told you something big was going to happen soon because the state of construction and fire, particularly fire safety within construction, and then the subsequent standard of maintenance and management, the the, the, the sheer variation in competence within fire risk assessments on uh, alone was was a big enough of an issue, let alone everything else. Like, yeah. you know that it's a problem when it's a rarity to see good compartmentation. Like, that was rare. We, we would have this ongoing joke as risk assessors, a very kind of morbid joke just to kind of so we didn't cry every day i suppose when you know going to a hospital and and i would see good compartmentation and i'd ring my mate up and be like hey i went to a good one today and he'd be like no and i'd be like yeah it was actually really good um and that was just like well, it infuriates me to think back on it jill if i'm honest yeah 
Yeah, you know, and, and that it's still happening today. And I mean, I've I've heard people raise hospitals as an issue, modern methods of construction, you know, which we're still building as an issue. And so we're, we're still willing to tolerate building unsafe homes as I think the hard thing to own. But we are. We're OK about that. And, and one thing I thought you covered quite hopefully I think other people got from it, but like what I took from the book as well is to not try and look at this with a narrow, narrow kind of lens. And like, and what it made me think of and what I've just kind of reminded myself as we were talking about this is, so I've got quite a lot of experience within from hospitals, for example, right? Compartmentation, exactly the same issues with compartmentation in hospitals, right? But also exactly the same issues with evacuation, except a completely different style of evacuation. Um, so typically in hospitals, you do progressive horizontal. So you would work your way around the building to a different compartment away from the fire. But eventually, it's extremely likely that you're probably going to have to leave the building um if if the fire is that bad um but nobody practices for that nobody so i used to manage like three counties when i was in the nhs and every single customer that i went to um and asked okay so what happens when the fire service turn up and say you've got to get out well you know we do progressive horizontal so we don't and i'm like no 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 progressive horizontal is progressive horizontal towards evacuation it's still a form of evacuation and they didn't get it and I remember once saying, okay, fair enough. Let's forget fire for a second. What about a terrorist attack? What's that? Somebody comes into your hospital and blows something up. Then the fire service will tell you to get out straight away because structurally the building's not going to be not going to be confident. And we just saw that a potential terrorist attack last, not last, last week. Yeah. So, but there's still such a narrow focus on this that so people are like, Oh yeah, right. Stay put's a problem. Let's focus on stay put. No, no, no. Evacuation is a problem. Exactly, and and I, it's it's the the learning across sectors. So exactly what you're saying. So it's become this narrow, high rise social housing mostly issue post greenfall versus we've got an issue with how we build and we've got an issue with how we respond to emergencies and looking at it from. And I think that's part of why we don't learn is because we keep this, what I call in the book, piecemeal approach, which keeps it very siloed and I suppose leaves us with a sense of control um, or, or doing something about it. But then we don't learn the broader macro thematic systemic lessons. You think sometimes maybe it's just a sheer scale of context and the sheer scale of stuff that needs to change it. People are just maybe just daunted by it and just think, you know what, there's no, there's maybe a, maybe not conscious, maybe it is conscious, but maybe it's like a subconscious uh, way to deal with it. Like a, I think, um, I, I think part of the problem is, is there's a, um, pressure often political pressure especially with something like rainfall but there's political pressure to be perceived to be doing something so people need to be in action so we have two new regulators we've got two new probably three new i can't if i lose count of how many new bills are going through parliament etc cetera, etc cetera. so we are busy so that we can be seen to be doing something and nobody's really looking at, well, what is the outcome that we're wanting and how are we going to measure progress? Um, 
So I think there's a, do you know, I call it, it's, it's like busy work that doesn't actually make people safer in their homes. I think there's a lot of busy work. And, and all I see as a result of that busy work, I think busy work is a great way to describe it. Um, and, and ironically, all I see from that is we're fixing complexity with more complexity. Like you just mentioned in there, what, three regulators, like four, three or four new bills, and then that's just the fire safety side of things. Then you've got all of the other um, parts of the building regulations, uh, approved documents that are coming out, which ultimately interact with each other. You know, this is they're, they're, they're a system um, that interact with each other. And I, and I just look at this and I'm just like, no one can work this out now. And Dame Judith Hackett put in her report, I'll, I'll never forget that beautiful little messy flow chart that she did around the, like, this is the construction regulations. And I'm just like, somebody try and work that out. Like, and we're just fixing that with more complexity. Like, That's I'm, just additive, but, you know, let's just add more. And we don't know what's actually keeping people safe. Like, we're not looking at that. And also what's the residents role in keeping people safe because the majority of fires are put out before you without ever calling fire brigade so we never look at well what's that part and how could we ramp that up it's just a very it's a very um predictable response i mean grainfall is a is a very predictable response which is sad do you like it what interests me as well is like do you, do you see i know you 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 kind of you you interact with the residents and obviously interact with the public maybe and what you do, but do you, do you, is there an appetite? Do you see like an increased appetite from the public to educate themselves on, on, on this stuff? So I think, I think one example that there is to, I'll put some context to this question to a point like I remember being in a, a design stage for um, the building of a, a block of flats. So we had the designs, we'd been sent the designs, we'd been sent the fire um, safety design, we'd gone through it all. And I remember seeing um, a beautiful flat uh, being designed on a third, on a third floor um, for a, uh, it was an accessibility flat. So it was for a wheelchair user, it was designed for a wheelchair user. It was on the third, third floor of a set of flats. So my first thought was wheel stairs, you know, I'm, and I'll say this nicely, not being derogative, uh, doesn't make sense. We've got lifts. Okay, great. Go to the fire, um, the fire design. Are they are they evacuation lifts? Are they? No, they're normal lifts. So I'm like, okay, right. That's a question for the architect. We get into the meeting, and um, again, this is a this this comes back to a, a different point as well, which I'd like to touch on to, that you touch on in a book uh, as well around compliance. Not not needing become not meaning safety and and it made me think back to this exact meeting as well that I was in a meeting and I said right people we got a wheelchair user flat on the third floor what happens if they need to get out the first thing comes back to what I said earlier is a, it's just a terrible education around evacuation yeah but it stay put yeah but not if the fire's within their flat but it stay put. No, but yeah, but not if the fire's in their flat. Honestly, I had to say, I had to repeat that like four or five times before the architect, who's paid a lot more money than me, um, uh, actually got it. And it was like, oh, right, okay, yeah. So, um, but then they can use the lifts, but yeah, but they're not fire evacuation lifts. And they said, yeah, but they don't need to be because the, the building's not tall enough. So I'm like, okay, 
but you, we just acknowledge that this person needs to get out in a fire and they can't, they're being told not to use the lifts in, in the event of a fire. So do we not think we should turn them into evacuation lifts? Yeah, but they don't need to be evacuation lifts. They're not, they're, the, the building's not, not uh, tall enough. So, and I was like, but it's not safe. And then I got the response. What you want about is it? compliant. And I'm like, no, it's not safe. But that, and that's a point I do want us to touch on, but maybe let's park that for one second. The one thing I always did think about is I wonder whether that flat would have sold. And I think it would have. Yeah. Whether that person buying that flat or renting that flat in the wheelchair would have thought about it themselves. So I don't know whether that's something that have you come across maybe those conversations with the general public? Have they changed the way that in your, in your, your experience, is anyone going, actually, maybe I need to educate myself on this? I, it, I, I think it's one of the things that's not taken into account and actually in, in many cases is seen as problematic because I think that Greenfall has fundamentally changed the public's view of fires and how to respond in fires. To a large degree, it's to get out. So you'll see um, the public walking past a fire. So if we if we go back to, was it 2018 or 2019, where we had that spate of there was the crew student, uh, the crew care home and the cube um, student accommodation in Richmond. So there were these massive, they were low, medium rise, but massive fires that destroyed building. The residents and the public behaved differently in terms of see a fire, get out. So I think the, um, absolutely there's a change in residents because everybody saw Grenfell. But that's seen as problematic because it's seen to impede firefighting. So, for example, and, and I, I'm, I should say I haven't double checked this, but somebody told me it was official advice is in um, to quiet alarms, so to silence alarms. So now residents um, who live in unsafe buildings won't be alerted to the first alarm because they might get in the way of fighting buildings. And I just get so angry because I think it's my life as a resident. I need to be able to make choices about my own safety and somebody else choosing to silence an alarm that could save my life is for me entirely problematic. So I, th I think the whole notion of how we relate to residents is completely flawed. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you come on to that, Jill, because it's something, it's something I struggle with now because I look back on a lot of the work I did uh, within housing and. Um, one of the biggest, it's really kind of hard for me to say, actually, on the podcast, um, one of the most common things that I would end up doing as a result of the fire risk assessment was it was um, kicking off a project to remove a fire alarm from the communal area of a, of a block of flats um, because it negated the, 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 the design of the building and it encouraged people to evacuate when we didn't want them to evacuate we wanted them to allow the fire service to come in because we you know we were trained that compartmentation uh work. And, and we were trained that you know the aim is that the fire service get there within on average i think it it used to be like 15 minutes i think last i checked it was like 40 minutes is the average response time now which is scary because that only leaves 20 minutes between compartmentation failing and 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 the fire service getting there on average. So I think they do get there a lot quicker than that normally, but ultimately speaking, we were, 
we were proactively removing those. And I look back on it now and think, I don't know, it scares me to, I don't, I, I purposely don't think about it because I think if I'd have left that in, it would have maybe accounted for all of everything else that's wrong. Just even though I would have been going against everything I'd trained, all the guidance had told me you need to take it out, all of the mentors, and, I, and I'm not judging anyone, any any other fire assessors, I'm more kind of judging myself, is that if I'd have not raised that, I'd have given that person control, like you just said, um, to make a decision themselves. I think so. Like, firstly, thanks for saying it. I, I appreciate how hard that is to say, but I, I also don't know that the answer is simple. So I don't know that it's necessarily, well, we should have alarms because there are issues with that. I mean, which goes back to, if you look at it systemically, is, is we have a single, we allow single staircases. So if you've got single staircases, you have this issue of access. So it, you know, if, if you take it back and back and back, there's a whole host of contributing factors to, you know, if there's two routes of escape, you're fine. Residents can get out one and the fire service can come in another. So I, I, just, I just, I don't think it's that simple because, I mean, we don't have um, fire alarms here. In, I mean, my building's old, so we don't have fire alarms. And I think we almost don't want them because there's the, the other problem is vandalism and false alarms. And it's not as simple. But I think there's, for me, something around it's my life. I should be able to make choices. And in a lot of the response, that seems to be forgotten. So other people are making choices for my life as a resident in a high-rise building rather than thinking about how can they empower me to make smart choices about my life. So I think that paradigm is, is what's wrong. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think it just highlights how complex this 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 whole issue is, and, and that's just that's just alarms. And then we end up in we end up into compartmentation. We end up into single access. We end up into who owns the fire door. Then we end up into leasehold and and rented stock. And exactly. Then, you know, then that's housing housing act interacting with the regulatory reform order, and and it just gets just so messy. Like I've never, and I was talking about this actually on a. Project Melitium call the other day, and um, and we we stumbled across it, and somebody I can't remember how we kind of stumbled across it, but basically someone was like, you know, they should just they should just replace the fire doors, and I was like, it's not simple as that. Like if you'd have if you'd have replaced the fire door, I, so I remember having this exact conversation. If if we we so we I worked for a housing association. We had um, social housing rented stock, and then we had. A, a, a large number of private leasehold blocks, right? If we as a company replaced a leaseholder's door, it would have been seen as the rented stock subsidizing the leasehold stock. Now flip that on its head to a political context, a social political context, and this sounds really horrible, but that's the that's the poorer sides of society funding and subsidizing the, the richer sides of society, which no company or, or, or government body is going to want to go near. Just one example of how messy this really is. I haven't actually found the answer to this because I probably don't want to, but because we, we lived in a privately owned apartment in Grenfell and we had different fire doors because for exactly the reason you're talking about is the fire doors weren't replaced in the leaseholders flat. So we had a different fire door, but I, 
I kind of like sometimes have this in my dark moments, have this thought about, well, I wonder if the performance of the old doors that the leaseholders still have was better than the performance of the new doors, which we know failed. Mm. It's a super complex issue. It's really, it's really. I do want to return to the, the the one thing that you said around the um, disabilities and getting out. So I, I do know because uh, there's uh, just because their campaign is there are people. Uh, I don't know if you know about PEEPs, you know, the um, what does it stand for? PEEPs, emergency. Personal Eva Emergency Evacuation Plan, um, which was a recommendation from Module 1 and then has not been implemented or brought into law, although they say they're going to. But I know people who are disabled and live in high rise who come up with plans with their neighbours. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you know? So their neighbours have the, the special chairs that take you down the stairs and they know exactly how to evacuate. And I just think there's, you know, so people go, well, we can't do peeps because that means we'd have to have somebody on site all the time, which obviously is cost-wise not, not going to happen. But how could we draw on communities and people? And I just think residents are seen as this problem. I mean, in a, you know, hop context, seen as the problem, not the solution. And, and that's um, actually, Jill, a hugely problematic area that, that I probably dealt with every single day, every single day. And, and me and the national fire manager that I worked with at the time, who I highly respect, um, you know, the guy's an absolute genius when it comes to fire engineering and fire safety management. Um, we took a very uh, simple approach to this, um, which caused a lot of a lot of probably an oversimplified approach granted, but it caused a lot of problems. Um, and we simply asked the question, can this person self-evacuate? Because if they can't self-evacuate, we've got a problem and we need to yeah. have a um, And actually, Jill, um, one of the reasons I ended up leaving that company was because um, I remember getting told basically to be quiet because I was being discriminatory towards people that are disabled because a lot of these people have worked really hard to be independent. And I'm now saying they can't self-evacuate. Um, and, and I was basically threatened um, to, to be that kind of person, you know, a bit of a bigot, which was painful um, and infuriating because like, I'm so not that person. Um, and, and all we were trying to do was highlight that, we are trying to trying to keep these people safe and help them not not keep them safe because we're not better than them but we we took the approach to say you know can they self-evacuate no then we need to do something about it um and ultimately that led us to a very difficult place in that if they can't self-evacuate and the company was not able or willing to put somebody in place to help aid the evacuation um we were at the position where they weren't suitable for that property. And that now comes into an extremely difficult conversation because we've now got to go and tell a customer, you're not suitable to live here. And they might have lived there for 20 years. They might have lived there for a lifetime. Um, and it was just, I, I, I have not, I can't remember a time where we actually solved that problem. And I think a, a lot of that also, though, is around, again, back to, to residents' choices, how much do we allow residents to make informed choices about that? So these are the risks if you stay here uh, and, and have them 
look at what do I want to do? I, I, I think I just struggle, especially because it's around my life is, do you know, do you know, like people not wanting to give residents bio risk assessments, like how can you hold back information about the risks in the building I live in and, and, and justify that to yourself? But I just, I really struggle with that. I know we're being a little bit grainful focused, but I do really struggle with that. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, it's a really complex area, but but yeah, it is um, it is difficult, and that that relationship between the organisation and the residents is is a really, I think it's a really powerful story to communicate the power of talking to the front line and listening to the front line, which in in the workforce that is the machine operator, the builder, the bricky, whatever, but in housing, that's the general populace that live in your. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, really powerful. I'd, I'd like to touch on a point that I touched on earlier that I said we'll park and come back to it around um, compliance not achieving safety, which is a, a common kind of golden thread throughout the book, comes up quite a lot. Um, and, and I pretty much use that and quote and reference, obviously, your work quite a lot on that because I think we aim for compliance a hell of a lot um, and we think that that's achieved safety which it inevitably does not. Yeah, so I, th I think one of the first things is um, to get that safety is that output, safety or not safety, is the output of a complex socio-technical system and regulations and policies and procedures and compliance or not to them is only one input into that. So you can never say that the input of compliance is going to guarantee um, a safe output. And then you get into, I mean, Decker talks about this a, a fair amount as well, is they're always reactive, they're additive. So how do they speak with one another? You know, so so I think, and, and certainly in the UK regarding building safety is, uh, and fire safety, is those are minimum standards. And, and we, we seem to hold compliance to, regulations as maximum gold level standard and it's just not it's minimum standards of compliance absolutely shocking a, a recent um organization that i worked with um you know had had a value to say we achieve the highest possible standards but yeah when it came to risk management safety or anything like we were aiming for compliance compliance exactly that's what your accountant turning around the same we're aiming to break even yeah same thing it's it's how how do you even think that's the highest possible standard? And that not just them, you know. I've I've experienced that through my whole career, and I've even done it myself in my earlier years within the within the my career. Is that 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 is what you're taught in a way? Is that that is the that's the pinnacle of your follow the rules exactly? And also, um, it it uh, doesn't take into account change, so contextual change but particularly with regard to sustainability material change so we'll start to use different materials in different ways in different contexts and if all we're trying to do is comply we'll fail to again it goes back to risk to actually understand what are the hazards and how can we mitigate risks we'll just stop doing that because things are changing so now we go we go wood, but it's very unclear whether wood is safe. And, and I but think it's sustainable. So everybody's going, let's build 50-story wooden buildings. And you go, well, 
where are we going to see a fire? Where are we going to see a multi-fatality fire? It's not rocket science. Yeah. And, and also, I think it the, the, the aim for compliance, it for me, shows a distinct naivety in, in the legislation itself, in my opinion, in that, you know, how, how can you ever aim to achieve reasonably practicable? Like, it's not it's not that's just not not something you can achieve or measure it's it's a very subjective and, and relative term in a way um that's that's really going to only ever be determined by the outcome um yeah. so only ever I, I know that there is there has been precedents that have kind of defined reasonable practicable practicable but ultimately a reasonable practicable in that event that you're talking about in that risk assessment or whatever can only ever be defined by the court with hindsight, never, never. Exactly. And, and the regulatory reform order is no, is not really any different. It just says do a risk assessment and off you go, um, deal with the risk. Um, so trying to achieve compliance for me just shows a naivety in the legislation itself. I do think because the um, building safety bill will bring in um, safety cases. So which were also brought in post Piper. So that's when they first came into oil and gas. So depending on how those are done, I think it might shift how people think because what you're trying to have people think about is the safety of the whole building as a system and across the life cycle of of the building. So hopefully that will shift something because we know that that did shift those in oil and gas. So we started looking through whole life cycle and we certainly started looking at risk differently. But whether there's the competence and is it the same? Do you know, can you just take what's happened in high hazard industries and apply it to homes? We, we, we'll see. But certainly there's a, the other thing that worries me is there's a huge regulatory burden um, and who's paying for it? You know, safety, who's paying for it is the question. I suppose, I suppose we've got to start somewhere, haven't we? It's a nice place to start. And, and we've seen success in, in safety cases, to your point. Um, so hopefully um but i i agree i think it i think you bring in safety cases um i think it's probably only inevitable till we start seeing safety cases applied elsewhere um uh, when we see hopefully see more success for that in the kind of common the normal working environment suppose like outside of high reliability stuff um which therefore means that you you start you'll need a complete overhaul of, of the educational routes into into a traditional safety role uh, and I think that the the one thing again on on compliance that troubles me is, which is again a mindset and a cultural issue, is if you're trying to get something past regulations, you'll just figure a way how to do it. Do you know? And I I worry that that's a lot of where people think from in design and buildings and houses as well. How can I get this past the regulation? No one's asking to to your point is this safe? You know, safety is not held as a fundamental principle or value, whereas in high hazard industries, I know there's still a lot of failure, but it is how can we produce safely? And and that doesn't necessarily all come from this moral do-good. It's we know that there's a huge business cost when things fail catastrophically. Um, so... There is um, there's one one other thing I wanted to touch on, Jill, because um, I, I remember you mentioned it the first time we did the recording, and um, and I think it's a really powerful point. 
um, around around blame. So you talk about blame really, um, and, and the blame merry-go-round uh, in your book, which was, um, we, we read it at Project Millennium Book Club, and I think everyone everyone had their own version of a blame merry-go-round in the workplace or in their experience. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting point. But I think there was something that I wanted to touch on that is this, and actually I only just did a post about it on LinkedIn on um, on Sunday, which I, I tagged you in originally and then remembered that we're not putting that podcast out because the audio is crap. So I was like, oh, do I tag her or not? Because I'm not putting the podcast out. And then, oh, so I just left it off. But I'll uh, go and look for it. <laughs> yeah. And basically what I talked about is I gave a quite, at the moment, I'm a bit of a geek me. I like my fictional TV shows. Um, and at the moment I'm watching His Dark Materials by Philip, based on the Philip Pullman stuff. Yeah. And um, there was this lovely bit, lovely little scene in there where, um, this lady, she'd lost one of her sons and the whole film was uh, trying to, the whole film, the whole series so far had been trying to find this little boy. Um, and she'd lost her other son who had gone out to try and find her youngest son. And, um, and she basically said to like the general of her group, if you've, if you've done this, if you've sent him away, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be really angry. And, and then the general guy basically said, you know, blame's not going to help us right now. And I was like, Ooh, yeah, I'm going to write that one down. And then she responded even better, which I thought put in a nutshell our relationship with Blaine. If she went and she, she hit her chest where her heart is and she, she went, but it helps me. It helps me. And I was like, oh, I love fiction. It's such a better way to, to describe what we try to do in, in the workplaces. We, we, we are struggling with this emotional need for blame. And we, we then inevitably bring that into the workplace and learning from events and it doesn't help, but it, but the argument then becomes, and I've been there, you know, not so long ago, where we just say, just get rid of blame, just get rid of it. Just stop blaming. And you can't do that. Yeah. And I realized after my conversation with you and then watching this and I was like, no, no, no. And I think you said it. And again, I'm ruining it because it'd be better if you said it, but acknowledge it as an emotion deal with it like in a way that you grieve and then and then go on and crack on about trying to implement systemic change I yeah i think it's it's so um that i think there is this emotion i mean because people think sometimes that i don't blame you know i do you know in my darkest moments i i i bang my head against a wall i spend i read things that come out from the inquiry week after week and i'm in floods of tears and just want to, uh, I can't, I, I wouldn't say shoot people because I wouldn't, but just like want to go, you should be punished. You should be in prison. You should. And I still do think people should be punished and people should be in prison for, for Grenfell. But I also know that blame will not lead to systemic change. So there's a um, demand on me to move beyond that. And really the book again tries to do that. So if I look beyond blame what can I see what, what you know why does this and again this goes back to all the thinking from hop etc etc is new view of safety is why does it make sense versus what went wrong which gives you access to a very different systemic view because it would be so easy to read your book it would be so easy to I'm trying to think of another example go and listen to um Oh, what's a, it's a really good, pro, the Brady Haywood podcast where they talk about the mine disaster in New Zealand. Um, yeah. 
Pike River. You know, when you listen to that, I remember talking to, uh, again in Project Millennium, I, I remember talking to a member of ours, and she was struggling with this need to blame um, because she listened to Pike River and she was just like, you know, screw them. You know, they made these decisions. They knew what the risk was and, and it caused, you know, this horrific event. Um, and it's the same, you know, reading your book and, and having such a connection with this for it being their home, working in fire safety. You know, I was bawling my eyes out nearly every night reading a book of all these stories of children and you know, the story of the little girl on the, on the phone to the emergency responder. And, and I was just like, I felt so angry. I felt so angry. And I just thought, what would I do right now if I worked in housing? Like I would be infuriated. Um, and I had to then, you know, go to work, be angry with this and just, just deal with that emotion. Just let it come in, let it happen, move past it and, and try and learn from this and try and try and help to it stop happening again. But I do also, I, I think, and I think I say this in the book, is that I do believe in consequences. So I, I, I don't believe in um, in there not being consequences or people not being held to account for action. I think that's actually a critical part of change and particularly systemic and cultural change is, is where people have intentionally failed to deliver on accountabilities. There should be consequences for them. And, and that's applicable on any sphere. But the blame is an emotional response. It's you're a wrong and a bad person versus um, you were accountable for this. And what did you have in place to assure that you were actually fulfilling your accountability? And if you failed to do that, what are the consequences for failing to do that? It's just a different conversation because I think often people go, no blame is equal to no consequence. And I absolutely am not. If I, I, I absolutely believe there should be consequences for individuals and organizations that were involved in Grenfell. When you've got something like, like Grenfell that has, that has such complexity to that, there inevitably is a lot of accountability through that line. A um, lot of people in decision-making positions, various organizations, bodies, et cetera, it that accountability conversation is inevitably really hard because you've got so much context to each one, haven't you? Like, you know, I mean, I just to throw out a couple, you're building a block of flats. Uh, well, that's a, you've got the, that's a, you didn't build Grenfell. We've refurbed Grenfell. You know, we're having conversations and pressure to make a more sustainable building. So the cladding might be pressured to be more environmentally friendly and not really talk about fire because no one's had a fire in years. Um, then you've got cost pressure, then you've got the pressure to just get stuff done quick. Everything's got to be done yesterday, nowadays. Then you've got the kind of cultural context, which we've seen um, within the uh, a kind of culture of, I want to say, I, don't, I want to say cheating tests, but, you know. That Race to the bottom or the, oh, the yes, the um, cheating tests. Yeah, I don't, I mean, that's pretty don't, much it. <laughs> Plainy phrase, doesn't it? So I feel like I'm, but you've got all of this context. And I think it's that's something that people really struggle with, with this kind of culpability and accountability, this blame and accountability relationship. And they're like, well, okay, so we're still going to hold someone to account, but there was still context as to why that maybe leader of an organization made that decision. So I suppose the question would be can accountability ever truly just sit with 
one person or uh, so from my belief is it needs to sit at decision making level so again it's never for me it's never the or very seldom unless it's intentional um it's it's not you know malicious acts it's not frontline it's where are the boards that made the decisions to knowingly continue to sell flammable materials in the UK? So where are the where were those decisions made, which is at executive level in organisations? And you very very seldom see prosecutions at that level. I'm certainly not one that you should. Uh, blame the worker on the ground for a poor decision. You have to understand the context that they were operating in and the people that are accountable for setting context are at executive levels and organisations. That's their job is to create context and they should be held to account. Mm. And, and also as much as they should be held to account, I think the other thing is they should be assuring that the context is sound. So in a proactive sense, because again, all these conversations are reactive conversations, which aren't very helpful. So from a proactive perspective is what are the C-suite doing to assure themselves that the right behaviors are happening and particularly in complex um, supply chain uh, delivery mechanisms. And I don't think that's happening in housing. Again, I think there's a lot that oil and gas has learned about that so again it's not perfect but i think that whole assurance supply chain collectively owning risk you know just before greenfall um i was oh no sorry just before lockdown i was working with a client on a big project where we would we bought all the contractors together uh, all the major contractors together it was a um i can't remember i can't remember the details of the project but the whole intent was to go okay what do we need to do to make sure we're always raising concerns, even when commercially it could work against us if we raise concerns? So what are the mechanisms we need to put in place and how do we need to relate to one another so that it, when the context is pulling for us not to raise issues or operate safely, we do. Mm. And that was proactive. That was right at planning stage of the project and was fully supported by all the project sponsors. So it was kind of, you know, operationalizing, how do we collectively own risk? Because you have to collectively own the risk. You can't have one company as accountable for this part of the risk and that part of the risk because it's dynamic. And, and that's kind of like, that's kind of like resilience 101, isn't it? Like building building the capacity to understand, you know, what what can hurt us or our responsibilities or what could be an opportunity and then kind of how soon will we know if something's going wrong and really you can only do that through open honest exactly conversations and you know i know you know people think that kind of layers of protections or swiss cheese or bow tie are very simplistic but they're super super good frames for having those kinds of conversations without without much technical knowledge it's just kind of like well, what's the worst thing that could happen? What are the barriers that we've got in place to correct it? And if it does go wrong, what are we going to do about it? You know, and having that conversation collectively with supply chains. I, it's, I was speaking at a conference recently and I said how many people are having those conversations. One person out of around 300 raised their hand. That was two months ago. That was actually, I was the last time when we recorded, I was speaking the next day. We did it from a hotel room. And it's interesting, 
I was in a group of, uh, I was in a room of very senior safety professionals. Let's put it that way. We were in there talking about mental health uh, for, for this example. And how do we manage mental health? And I asked a question in there because um, they were all talking about like, let's get an app. Let's have pizza Fridays. Let's have bean bags and have some frigging slides in the office or whatever. Right. And I was like, okay, yeah, look, that stuff's really good. Having those support lines are really good. Having all of this stuff is, is really good. Um, but you know, ultimately they're, they're, they're plasters over bullet wounds. If you haven't, if you haven't solved, you know, the, the big issues, the, the, the really big contributory factors to, to people's poor mental health. Um, so I said, we should really be asking questions like, do leaders risk assess their decisions? Do leaders make decisions and go, what's the risk of this decision? So do, do leaders buy a plot of land knowing that that's got a really tight deadline? So they've got to build 27 houses in that tight plot of land and a really, really tight deadline. Do they understand the risk of that? Do they understand that you're under a lot of pressure, you're in a tight environment, you're contributing to human error, you know, you're, you're creating pressure on people, you're going to create more stress, you're going to cause more problems. It's already a complex environment in construction anyway. You know, do, do they risk assess those decisions? Honestly, Jill, if I had if I had like a digital tumbleweed that I could have rolled across, <laughs> and these are senior professionals, and one guy turned around and he went, you know, I've never really thought of that. It's a really good question. I'm like, you've never thought. So you're taking your risk assessment conversation and you're taking it to the person who's in the least control. He's got no control over changing that. And, and it blew my mind. I haven't got the paper now, but it blew my mind that actually, and I've stumbled across this paper in 2003, the HSE labo laboratory um, did a paper on the pitfalls and good practice of risk assessment. And it said in there, doing risk assessments after the decisions was made was like the top or second pitfall. And I'm like, that's 2003. We're still doing this now. Still doing it now. Do you know, and on the mental health thing, I'm so with you. It's like everything that we do is just sticking plaster over the real issues. And I was, I was doing some work with um, a group of executives a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about, well, you know, when because stress is obviously one of the big, big issues and in, in many organizations I work with now that's a, a higher reason for absenteeism than injuries which I think we're seeing a trend across the industry for that and I'm like but do you sit down with your teams and go okay what's going to cause us stress in the next month they all know do you know and and we're not having these kind of you know like error and violation provoking conditions what are the stress provoking conditions and what can we do to mitigate against those and instead what we do is you know, mental health first aiders, which has, there's no evidence that those impact on mental health or let's do Pizza Friday. I'm like, no, sit with your teams and go, let's map out the next month. What are the touch points? What do you individually and personally need to make sure that you're taking care of your mental health? And you'll see a shift immediately, but it's, it's simple conversations. But I do love the thing about risk assessing decision-making because I think from a, a, a systemic perspective is considering unintended consequences in decision-making is one of the biggest accesses to, especially low probability, high consequence events is, okay, if we make this decision, what, what are the potential unintended consequences? We just don't ask those questions. Right, right. Right. Jill, Jill, I could talk to you all day, but I'm, I know, likewise. I haven't had any dinner yet. I'm gutted what we haven't spoke about what I'm now calling the resilience menagerie, which is the swans, the elephants. The swans, the elephants, yeah. 
It's our little zoo, the little, the little risk zoo. Yeah, that's it. I'm, I, that's called my resilience menagerie. I, I keep introducing it to people. There's a there's a new one. That's, I haven't read the paper, but there was another one which is about green swans, which I imagine has got something to do with sustainability. So there's a there's a new a, a new a new visitor to our menagerie of 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 risks in the zoo. There's a dragon in there somewhere as well. Which there's I a dragon. There's a dragon introduce that yeah I've, people are struggling enough with the swans rhinos jellyfish and uh, and elephants at the moment um but it's interesting that i introduced it to a group of people and they went yeah yeah like like covid that was a black swan event and i was like let's just move on <laughs> i've obviously not communicated that very well it's <laughs> brilliant it's brilliant wonderful which i would have really liked to have a chat about canavan but uh, I'm starving. Another time we can, we can, we can, it's always delightful to speak to you. So very much Jill for coming on. Um, if people want to find out more, watch the podcast, oh, sorry, read, listen to the podcast, read the book, work with you, whatever. How, what does that look like? How can they um, kind of get hold of you or keep track? Perfect. Of- so um, I, I'm quite active on social media, LinkedIn from this community, probably, but also Twitter. So just Jill Koenig and it's Jill with a G. Um, and then the book is called Catastrophe and Systemic Change, Learning the Lessons from the Grenfell Tower Fire and Other Disasters, which is available on Amazon or most other major booksellers. So if you just search for Catastrophe and Systemic Change, you'll find that. And then the podcast is called Catastrophe, the podcast. So if you search again for Catastrophe, the podcast, um, there, there is one that's about the, um, there's a series called Catastrophe as well. There is one about that, so don't, don't end up listening. <laughs> to this you'll see catastrophe the podcast and it's with matthew price and me doing that so but if you just search for them on google they'll all come up and do feel free to reach out i love i one of the if i end maybe with hope so it's been a very um as with you james difficult existential journey over the last uh four and a half years but I have actually found a huge amount of hope from online communities, from from people that I've never met that have reached out and it's made me realise I'm not on my own. So I do do appreciate connection and, um, you know, being connected to people. So just say that it makes a difference to me. It makes a difference to me when people follow me or send me messages or comment. It, It makes me feel like I'm not this mad lone voice out there. Yeah, I can relate to that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jill, for all the work that you're doing. Honestly, um, I, I love everything that, that you're doing. And I think your book is beautifully written. Uh, it is a painful read in the first couple of ch- chapters, but it's a necessary painful read. And um, and ultimately, beyond that, I think you, you introduce to most the reader um, or you reintroduce or you explain uh, depending on where the reader is on their level of maturity with this stuff, some really complex stuff like the Canevan framework, behavior being within context, um, the relationship between blame and accountability really well. Uh, and I think you write beautifully. So thank you very much for all the work you're doing. And thank you for that book because I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, James. And thanks for inviting me on the podcast.
No worries. Okay, peeps. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jill. Um, thank you very much, Jill, for coming on. She's an amazing lady. Thank you very much for the work that you're doing. Um, thank you for your book. Thank you for your podcast. And just thank you for not giving up. Um, we need more people like you. And like I said in our conversation, you know, I was really happy to see someone with your skills and knowledge and attitude um, with such an emotional attachment to Grenfell because... Um, Hopefully that will help drive systemic change within the industry that really, really needs it. So thank you very much, Jill, for your for your uh, work. We could do with more people like you. Don't forget to check out Paradigm Human Performance website, phone, email in the description below. Um, if you're looking to get your human and an organization to perform better, they are the partner for you. So don't forget to check that out and the learning organization webinar as well. If you are a safety risk health professional and you want to improve your professional development by being in a community, a safe community, a private community uh, of all other amazing people working in the same space, trying to help each other solve problems, getting in regular conversations with each other. You want to come to an event every quarter. You want to read a book and then talk about that book with other people. If you want to have philosophical conversations once a month run by a resident philosopher, then Project Miletium is a place for you. So please go and check out the website in the description. Don't forget to go check out rebrandingsafety.com. There's loads of services that we can provide for you, whether you are an organization looking for some help to just get better at this risk management safety stuff, um, whether you're looking for a keynote, whether you're looking for some influencer marketing uh, because you want to get your brand in front of a huge audience of safety risk and health professionals then there's something on there for everyone and i'm sure we can help you we love working with our audience uh, as well so don't forget to check out all of that stuff and otherwise i'll catch you next week safe the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.